from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, December 8th. Annie Lowry writes about economics and politics for The Atlantic, and she wrote the 2018 book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Well, based on an Atlantic article she wrote last week, maybe she should write a new book called Give People Home Ownership. The article is called It Will Never Be a Good Time to Buy a House, Well, Maybe in 2030. And this isn't just about New York and San Francisco and places like those. This is a national take. And no, it is not primarily about the recent rise in mortgage interest rates. We'll also touch on some other recent Annie Lowry articles as she just keeps provoking us to think more deeply about money and politics kinds of things with articles like her newest one called Inflation is Your Fault and recent ones like Maybe Don't Drive into Manhattan, Is Single Parenthood the Problem? If you're worried about the climate, move your money, and the new meaning of tattoos. Annie, always good to have you, even though our main hook today is your housing doom loop article. Welcome back to WNYC anyway. Thank you for having me for for more bad news. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's first establish that you say unaffordable home buying prices are not just in the big cities like New York and San Francisco right now. How national a problem are you describing here? There are certainly places where homes are still affordable for middle-income families. Um, There are absolutely places. So, um, you know, in the Rust Belt, uh, a lot of housing remains affordable. Um, uh, You know, sort of in some of the upper prairie states it does. There's parts of Florida. There's parts of Texas. But it used to be, you know, if we were talking 10 years ago, that you would have just really extraordinary housing prices in your New York, in your San Francisco, Seattle, big high productivity cities like that. And now we've seen a lot of suburbs and rural areas become really, really unaffordable. And the root problem here, there's probably one more than one, but one of the root problems is that we have been underproducing housing on the coasts for decades and now everywhere in the country since the Great Recession, basically. So so it's been a really, really long, slow buildup, and we just don't have enough houses where people want them. It's a really profound problem that's having all kinds of uh, effects. And you're right, this is not primarily about the currently high mortgage rates. The two main factors are what you call longstanding housing shortage and a frozen housing market. What does frozen housing market mean? So mortgage rates are really important to this story. And so what happened is that in 2020, right, um, COVID pandemic hits, uh, Fed pushes interest rates down to zero. And then as folks start uh, engaging a little bit more activity and as some of those local lockdowns stop, there's a huge surge in home buying and prices go up a lot. And then we have inflation. um, And so the Fed jacks up interest rates, mortgage rates go up through the roof. And everybody who has a low interest rate has less incentive to sell a house into this market now, right? Why would you give up a 2.5% or a 3.5% interest rate on your mortgage uh, if you're going to have to rebuy a home at a 6% mortgage or a 7% mortgage rate? And so people aren't putting things on the market. Nobody can afford to buy because the monthly cost of, you know, just imagine the same house or the same apartment, just the mortgage cost is going to make your monthly payment about 50% higher. And so the market's really frozen up. And the problem is 
when mortgage rates drop again, more people are going to flood into the market because so few people are buying right now. And so we have a, a really big, you know, it's kind of like you're filling up the water balloon with water and everybody's going to want to rush into the market. And that's going to keep prices really high as they are right now. Maybe they'll go even higher. I see. They're high now because the interest rates make them high. At least your monthly payments are high. And when that eases up, so many people will want to buy homes that supply and demand will mean that there's more demand than supply. And so prices will stay high because of that. I think that's what you're saying, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, on the housing shortage, you cite more than a decade of underbuilding after the Great Recession that began in 2008. Why underbuilding? Mm -hmm. This is a complicated phenomenon to explain, um, but it has to do with the price of land. So the price of land has gone up a lot, and so that means that um, you know home prices need to go higher. It's harder to make construction projects pencil out. Construction costs have gone up a lot, and construction productivity hasn't. So the cost of raw materials has been high. There's been labor shortages. The cost of labor has been high. And then you've seen a lot of restrictions on building that happen at the local level that have really had a national effect. So these are probably most exaggerated in a city like San Francisco, where, you know, maybe just to get the permit to put, um, you know, a little cabin in your backyard, an accessory dwelling unit will take like six years and cost $200,000 or something. And I'm, you know, making those numbers up. But we started to see that in a lot of places. Even our big cities are often heavily zoned for single family homes. They're not, you know, zoned for density. And so it's been this confluence of factors um, that has really, you know, led to a pretty significant housing shortage. Uh, the estimates vary, but probably we're short somewhere between 2 million and 6 million homes. And again, the location of those homes matters, right? Because we want to be placing those homes where people want to be living um, all across this, you know, big and diverse country. Yeah. Is there a deeper question there about the so-called laws of supply and demand? Don't the textbooks say if there's a lot of demand, producers will build more supply, in this case, more homes, because there's money to be made? Yes, absolutely. So what is making it such that, that, that supply can't meet demand? In a lot of cases, it's zoning and restrictions. Um, in some cases, it's because uh, the cost of building has become too high, again, because of those labor issues um, or, you know, materials issues or because land um, uh, has become too expensive, depending on where you are. There's kind of a million things just getting in the way of, of supply meeting demand. Um, I'd also note that it is, does not actually, the math does not work to build affordable housing units in any American city at this point, right? If you are going to be um, providing them as rental units to people who are making average incomes, below average incomes, or really low incomes, you need a large government subsidy for that. And the government subsidy uh, just isn't that big, right? Um, We've not done enough to incentivize affordable housing production and not enough is, you know, quote unquote, trickling down because we're just not building enough either. And so, you know, this is, this is kind of one of the root causes of, of the gentrification that people get really mad at, right? Hey, that new building is, is going up and where, where are the people who, um, you know, are working for a per hour as opposed to a big salary supposed to live? And NIMBY, nobody wants affordable housing built in their neighborhoods. 
No, they do not. They do not want social housing. They don't want public housing. They don't want any construction. Um, and, you know, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush there. But, yes, it's this consistent problem that people who show up at community meetings with a big megaphone say, hey, what about my parking? What about construction noise? I don't oppose this housing. I just oppose it in my backyard. And you get enough of those people doing it. And lo and behold, you underproduce housing dramatically. And, and you know, that's, uh, that's uh, what we've seen happen across the country. You say not in my backyard too many times, and then you don't have enough backyards. Listeners, Exactly, help. and we need the backyards that are close to transit and close to people's jobs and where people want. Um, so, you know, especially if you're living in a dense urban area, it means living around a lot of construction, social housing, public housing, low-income housing, different types of housing, housing that is changing. And I think that there's a lot of small-c conservatism on the part of homeowners who, again, they say, hey, I liked my neighborhood how it was. I don't want it to change. On interest rates, Annie, dissuading home buying, hadn't interest rates been historically very low for a long time before the pandemic, like after the first tech bubble burst around the year 2000, followed by the 9-11 economic shock in 2001, followed by a few years later, the Great Recession that began in 08. Hasn't the Fed just kept pushing interest rates to near zero for like 20 plus years? Yes. Interest rates have been at unusual historical lows. And I think nobody quite knows whether they're going to go back down to historically low levels. They, they are high right now. Um, but one thing I'd like to note, you know, I, I was talking with some readers who kind of said, hey, like back in the 80s and 90s and the 70s, it was pretty common to have like a 7% mortgage, right, or an 8% mortgage rate. What is so different now that, you know, people people don't want to be buying a house unless it's a 3% rate? And the difference is that home values are higher, right? Your average monthly cost wouldn't have been suppressed by the mortgage rate. It would have been suppressed by the fact that the house was cheaper, right? And it was probably also smaller and that there was just more housing supply back then. So I think both of those are kind of critical elements. But yeah, we have been in a period of extraordinarily low interest rates. Um, And, you know, there's some thinking that interest rates will be low for a long time once we get out of this sort of unusual moment in which, you know, the Fed is really trying to tackle inflation. Again, I don't I don't know about that. But, you know, there's some thoughts about the aging of the population, meaning interest rates will be lower. Um, And so, you know, I certainly I I, I don't know. Nobody knows whether whether mortgage rates are going to go back to where they were or whether, you know, after being seven or even eight percent, they'll go back to something more like, you know, four or five percent, right, um, in that middle range. Um, and, and you know, I think that's a big question mark. Yeah, I guess it's a question of what we should consider normal, right? Because now you can get five percent on a CD or a regular savings account, which means mortgage rates are a few points above that, which people are experiencing as shockingly high. But normal used to be that bank interest rates um, were like 5%, right, in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Um, and then they came down for so long. And I, I don't know if economists or policymakers or anybody has a handle on, you know, what the ideal new normal should be for the most people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the ideal is, is very different than just what, what normal is and what it will be. There's just so many factors that go into determining that rate. And who knows, right? What does it feel like? And how do the contours of our economy change 
in the next recession, right? There's, there's going to be huge questions about that because we have no idea why that might happen or when it might hit. And so these things are just enormously hard to predict. But one thing we do know is that, you know, because people also, when mortgage rates are really low, they also have this incentive to refinance, right? So people lock in those low mortgage rates, mm. and that often locks them into their house, right? Because again, if uh, people who sell homes often buy a home at the same time, right? You're trading for a different place, a different location. So sellers and buyers are often kind of the same people, right? Yeah. And if, if you've locked in that rate, you just, you have that incentive to stay in your house. Um, and, you know, would you give up a 3% rate for a 5% rate? Maybe, but it's really hard and really expensive to give up a 3% rate for a 7% rate. And, you know, that's part of the reason I think also that nobody's really buying homes right now. And, uh, the very large shares of buyers are buying in cash. So in Manhattan, which is obviously a very unusual housing market all the time, but in Manhattan, in the second quarter of this year, two out of three buyers bought in cash. Two out of three. It's just an extraordinarily high rate across the country right now. Um, more than 30% of buyers are buying in all cash. Alexis in Red Bank. You're on WNYC. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Brian. Guys, I was a realtor for about 12 years, um, and there is no more normal, okay? So we are dealing with the wild, wild west right now. Um, I sold real estate during 9-11, and what happened is a lot of people from Manhattan came to the suburbs. That made sense. They were done with the city. Um, that drove prices up. Prices never came back down from that period. Now we've just gone through COVID. Again, um, in regards to supply and demand, there's not enough supply for the amount of people that want to leave. Um, in regard to the interest rate, which, you know, is a big, a big factor in how people make decisions. I own a home now at around 3%. Uh, New Jersey is incredibly expensive. I have no more children in the school system. The only way I could do it is to sell my house. I will earn quite a bit and I will need to buy in cash. So it's not that I'm wealthy, but then I must either buy something, a townhome in New Jersey, or I have to leave New Jersey. And I'll tell you, there are some surrounding states that offer, I don't even want to give them away, but hmm. amazing deals, Delaware, and then the tax structure in Delaware. At 65 years old, you don't have to pay property tax anymore. I'm here in New Jersey. I'm in my late 50s. Okay, I have to think like that. I could leave New Jersey, buy something in cash, have no mortgage, and in a few years, not have to pay the exorbitant property taxes, and I don't have children in school. That's one no, other thing I'd you... like to say to your guests. Go ahead. Um, home ownership, I think it's very risky to say to people or to suggest, is home ownership the right idea? Home ownership in this country historically has been the main driver to move people from one socioeconomic group into another group. It is the vehicle on which people can hopefully retire. Um, and it also is like having your own bank. So when you own your house, you can refinance, you can take out a loan. Banks look at you differently if you own real estate and you are able to actually maybe start a business. So owning a home is a really, really great thing to do. And I do think we are now at the point that politicians have to get involved um, to try and 
correct what's happening. Last thing, I bought two pieces of plywood to make a repair yesterday. They were $90 a sheet of plywood. Mm. That's $180. So yes, the other complication, as your guest said, zoning, it's the supply chain since COVID, the cost of getting the product. Um, Alexa, since, let me jump in for time because we're almost out of time in the segment. But since you said government has to jump in and do something, do you have a number one or one and two policy prescription? Well, one, I do believe that they have to work with the property tax in the environment. Um, you know, the property tax or taxes are state by state. Uh, Governor, everybody talks about these. It's, everything's incremental, incremental, too much. The property taxes have to come down. There should be age uh, um, considerations. If you're too old to be childbearing, then why are you paying these high taxes? Um, and there have to be the um, interest rate, okay? So the Federal Reserve is given far too much power to set these rates. And there has to be some consideration for what is it doing to the American people. And, and Alexis, I'm going to leave it there. And obviously, the Fed would say, well, we think inflation is the bigger problem, so we have to raise the interest rates. Uh, but those were great calls. All of them are great calls, Annie. And the last two, um, Alex in Brooklyn, who's looking to buy maybe in the New Haven area. New Haven's pretty far, uh, but commuting from all the way there to New York City. And Alexis, also in the Burbs in Red Bank, um, but talking about how things that close in just have gone up and up and up and up and up and up since uh, 2001. And what do you think about the policy prescription? One interesting thing about the way that we do housing policy in the United States is that federal government has a lot of influence over mortgages and mortgage policy. We do a lot to subsidize mortgages um, uh, through Fannie and Freddie, right, which um, help reduce the effective cost of mortgages for folks um, through tax policies like the home mortgage interest deduction. Um, and federal gov government does a lot to subsidize rents. So that happens through HUD, uh, through the housing choice voucher program, right? We don't do kind of national housing supply policy here. Um, that's a constitutional issue uh, that zoning and land use is, is uh, the prerogative of the states, not the federal government. And the states generally delegate it um, to local areas. And I think that one of the profound political problems is that means that, you know, you get San Francisco homeowners saying, hey, we don't want that apartment building here. Or we get folks in Chicago saying, you know, we don't want that development here. Why don't you try someplace else in Chicago? And you have that same problem over and over again. Um, so, you know, one thing that I think is hopeful here is that I do think that many, many more places are recognizing uh, that we need a lot more housing. So uh, you've seen a broad variety of states. So everything from our really blue states like Massachusetts and California to our really red states like Montana, uh, starting to work on housing supply issues, getting rid of those zoning constraints, really pushing for more dense development uh, for environmental reasons and for housing cost reasons. And I think that there is so much more national emphasis on housing affordability because we are in the midst of an affordability crisis that was here before COVID and we need to get out of it and it's going to take a long time to get out of it. Um, and, you know, I would note that the increasing cost of housing pulls up other prices, too, for things like child care, for things like food. Um, and so um, 
it's a really profound problem, but I do think that politicians have come around to it. And I think we should be looking for a lot of national attention on the issue met with really, really powerful uh, state and local political change. And I think we're starting to see that in more places. And so, you know, I'm really hopeful if we have a follow up to this 10 years from now that the, you know, the story will be really different. Annie Lowry writes about economics and politics. Oh, and tattoos for the Atlantic. And tattoos. <laughs> Annie, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.